Thank you for joining us uh, online as well for those who are connecting in that way. And if you're just tuning in or if you're new here for the first time, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here and uh, just a, a great joy to be able to join with you to celebrate together today. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, when we hear the word apocalypse uh, in, in our sort of uh, common imagination, it brings with us uh, sort of images of doom and destruction, kind of a science fiction-y dystopian novel-y constellation of ideas. Definitely with a sort of Mad Max kind of aesthetic thrown in. Now, apocalypse in, in the common imagination brings like the idea of a world descending into chaos, anarchy, environmental and social upheaval. Or maybe for those of us who've been influenced by well, by the Christian subculture that's flowed out of the United States, the southern states for the last 40 years or so. Maybe it's flashbacks to those movies where Kirk Cameron features strongly and um, based on the highly imaginative but unfortunately deeply theological flawed left behind series of novels. But as we begin today, as we look at the early chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 in particular over the next number of weeks, we're going to need to start by just clearing away some of the clutter in order to be able to read Revelation well, to read it responsibly, to read it reasonably and in the way it's meant to be read. For As one scholar writes, if ever there was a book that could be described as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, it's the book of Revelation. And yet, it's also the only book in the Bible that comes with an explicit promise for those who read it out loud and who listen to it. It says, blessed are the ones. Why? Why is the blessing on this book? And at least one of the reasons is that in it, we hear directly from the risen, exalted, and reigning Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take about three minutes extra, more than I typically do on a Sunday morning, because I think it's so worth sketching out some of how to read this well, some of the background. And uh, in our new series, we're going to be looking specifically, as I said, at those churches to the seven, or the letters to the seven churches. And it was written, these were written, the book of Revelation was written to a real people at a real time in history, at the end of the first century. But it's very much for our moment as well. Now, the first uh, word in the book is apocalypsis, which means to reveal, to disclose, to make something known, to pull back the curtain, as it were. And that's where the book gets its name as well. If you look up any um, sort of in the ancient um, tradition, it's called the Apocalypse of John or sometimes the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And that word apocalypse is a part of its genre. Like the book of Daniel, much of this genre, this writing style, draws heavily on symbolism and imagery to do its work. It reveals, yes, but it does so using pictures primarily to do so. Just like a, a political cartoon. If you uh, notice a political cartoon from the Cold War era, you will see maybe on a New York Times uh, magazine something like a bear 
and an eagle in some kind of conflict. And what does that mean? Well, it's not literal. It's the bear is whom? It's Russia. <laughs> and the eagle is the U.S. And, and so like a political cartoon works by using images and symbols, so too the book of Revelation primarily does its work through images and symbols. But what exactly does it reveal? What does it make known? Now, often people approach the book like it's a crystal ball, revealing kind of esoteric secrets that if only we can unlock the key and the meaning, we'll know all these different events of world history. I'm sorry, it's not that. It just isn't. Yes, it does speak about future events, and we have to pay attention for where it does. It does... Uh, reveal some things about the ultimate future and our destiny within it. It really does that too. You know, there's this story of um, a janitor who's sweeping up after he's, he's at a church and there's a church gymnasium and, there's a, and he's sweeping up and he's overhearing a group of seminary students. Um, they've just been shooting hoops and now they're kind of just standing around and they're chatting and they're chatting about their book on Revelation or their class where they're studying Revelation and they're, and they're arguing about the meaning of and how we could never know really what the book of Revelation is about. And so the janitor's sweeping his way over to these guys and says, I know what it means. Really? You know? Yeah, I do. Okay. What does it mean? And the janitor says, God wins. And then he keeps sweeping again. And he's absolutely right. That is the meaning of the book of Revelation. It's that God wins. And that matters deeply. Because when you know that, you know that when you're walking in faithfulness with God, you can endure the pain and the hostility like these churches in the first century were going through, you can walk with that even in a world that is deeply hostile to the message of Jesus. Now, a key question for reading well is, what sort of writing is this? Uh, in the first six verses of Revelation, we actually find out that it's three different genres rolled up into one. It's apocalypse, it's prophecy, and it's letter. And that's part of the challenge of reading this well. Look with me for a moment. If you have your Bibles with you, if you have a device that has a Bible on it, flip to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 1. Just the first six verses here. Here we go. The revelation. There it is, that word apocalypsis. To reveal, to disclose, to make known. The revelation from Jesus Christ. And now some of you are looking at your Bibles and going, no, it says of Jesus Christ. Is it really that hard to translate? You might be wondering, of or from? I mean, they mean different things, right? And the reality is, yes, it is that hard to translate. I'm not going to go into the details about the difference between an objective or subjective genitive in Greek grammar, but that's the difference. And the fact that your Bibles will translate either from or of will show you that it's actually not that easy to figure out which one this is. However, I actually don't think we need to make a decision about that. Because as we continue reading, we find out that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals him. He's the main character. He's the focus of it. If you want to know what the book of Revelation is about, it's about God wins. It's about Jesus, the main actor. But it's also from Jesus Christ. He is the source of this as well, as we'll see. So, the revelation from Jesus Christ and of or about Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants what must soon take place. And then we find out how he does it. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is 
the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice, John saw. John does hear things and writes those down as well. But most of this book is presented in visual form. And that matters. God reveals not only in words, but in pictures too which work on our imaginations, which form us and shape us differently than simply uh, an argument in discourse format. And that's the primary way that apocalyptic literature works. It's through pictures and symbols. Now, verse three, blessed is the one, here's, here's the blessing, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of, prof- of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. Now, prophecy can certainly mean words about the future, about things that are coming. And that's what we commonly associate the word prophecy with. However, in the Bible, 95% of the time where it's speaking about prophecy, it's talking about forthtelling, not foretelling. Meaning it's a word of God for right now in this moment. 95% of the time in the Bible, prophecy means for right this moment. 5% of the time it's talking about something that'll happen later. And that's important for us to know because the book of Revelation is prophecy for now, for those people in the first century. It was speaking to them in their moment. And it does tell us things about the future and our future as well that are still in view and still to come. Verse four, John, that's the author, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Remember, this is now, as we see, a letter. This is written from one person to a group of churches at a time in history. It's a letter that's to be read during the worship service. (laughs) It's to them before it's for us. And he goes on, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is still to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Already this book is both revealing and reveling. It leads us to praise For in just the first few words, we're reminded of what's ultimately true, that we are loved by God, that we are freed through Jesus' work for us, and that we are made to be a kingdom and priests, all of us, to represent God to the rest of the world. That's who you are. And that leads us to celebrate, to get on our knees and say thank you. So let's just pause over that for a moment. This book in its revelation from Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ, right off the bat leads us to worship Jesus Christ. That's our first key point for today. This book, first and foremost, ought to lead us to worship. That's what it's here for, to yield our lives to the one who loves us. You know, back in my seminary days for our preaching and worship course, um, our professor, um, Dr. Michael Knowles at, at McMaster, he started each lecture in that class by reading through the book of Revelation and then just talking about it. If we want to know how to lead people in worship, if we want to know what worship is all about, if we want to lead people in in ways of discipleship and following Jesus, then Revelation is our book. That's what it does. It leads us to worship. 
indeed at the very heart of life with God is worship. It's not just knowing things about God, but knowing and delighting in God. And so this book, rightly read, leads us to worship. And this book is all about discipleship. It's about following Jesus. Uh, Daryl Johnson, in his brilliant book on Revelation, titles it Discipleship on the Edge. And that's exactly right. Discipleship, like following Jesus. For Revelation is not a crystal ball. Yes, it does say key things about the future, ultimately, and our destiny within it. But the primary purpose was to help its first hearers to follow Jesus faithfully. And that's it's still its primary goal, is to help us, to lead us to worship, and then to follow Jesus. That's what it does, especially in those moments that it gets hard. And that getting hard, that's on the edge part. For the churches that are uh, uh, receiving this letter initially, the seven churches of the province of Asia, as we hear, they're listed in Revelation 1.11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are communities very much on the edge of their cultures. They're now facing the real threat of significant persecution at the hands of the emperor Domitian. But more too, this book leads us right to the edge, the razor sharp point of decision. Who will be Lord of my life? And who is really Lord of the world? Every text is going to ask you to answer that question. Will Jesus be my Lord? Will I follow him or will I back away from it? So these seven letters, especially addressed to these seven churches at the end of the first century, they must be heard within the setting for their own time in history. However, the fact that there are seven churches addressed and that this is apocalyptic literature tells us more too. For seven represents wholeness, completeness, like a total number. And so these letters are yes for those first churches, but yes for every other church to listen to and hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We find that in Revelation 2.7. So it's for us to listen to with Spirit-attuned ears. And now, that background in mind, let's dive into the letter. We're going to start at Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7 today, but we're going to pray as we begin. Would you pray with me? Lord, for those of us who signed on to life, a life of following you, we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as your people. And for those who are in the process maybe of just wrestling with, is this all true and will I follow? God, make yourself known far beyond my abilities. Amen. All right, flip to Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. And let's begin reading there. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And already we're scratching our heads. What? Stars, lampstands, seven. But directly before this in 120, we actually read what those things are because the book helps us interpret itself. Um, this is what we read in 120. These are the seven stars of the angels or the heavenly messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we need to know every letter begins by revealing something of Jesus, of his nature or character or his works. 
And here we find out that Jesus is Lord and commander of the heavenly hosts. He has assigned one to each church too. And it says he holds them in his right hand. That means something incredible here. That means he is not one among the heavenly beings. He is not an angel. He's the one who commands them. He's the one in charge of them. All spiritual reality we find is in the hands of Jesus and no one else. That's important for us to know. And, and, and we also see Jesus is not an absentee landlord. He's not disengaged a deity who's kind of just like loosely acquainted with, oh, there's maybe some people down there. No, it says he walks among his churches. That highlights his proximity to us, his nearness. It shows how deeply he cares about what is happening in and with his people. So Jesus is right there among his churches, right here among his church at Summit Drive 2. For those of us who walked onto the lawn today, we were not the only ones to walk into this space. For Jesus walks among his churches. For you at home right now, he is in the room. And walking, that's moving slowly, deliberately, knowingly among us. He sees how we live in relation to each other and to the broader world around us too. Just saying it is almost too wonderful, but the text makes it clear that is the truth of where Jesus is. He is here walking among us now. And it leads me to ask like, whoa, how might I relate differently to Jesus this week if I were more aware of his proximity his nearness. Like what might change if I was aware of his real presence with me through the day? Can you visualize that? Can you picture that now? Can you picture it this week? Walking among us. Perhaps it would impact the way that we view ourselves. Remind us of how significant we are to God. Maybe we would worry less and talk to him more. Maybe it would draw us to live more fully alive and more in tune with God's heart in terms of the choices we make. And here's what Jesus then begins to say to the church in Ephesus. He says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then in verse six, we see another of his positive appraisals. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Indeed, the one who walks among his churches, he notices all of it. He sees their hard work what they've had to bear for his namesake. They've persevered under significant pressure and pressure in two directions, both internal and external. The external, that included the hardships that had come on them for refusing to literally bow their knee to worship Emperor Domitian. You see, at the time, Emperor Domitian was sort of revamping this idea of emperor worship, that the emperor was somehow the son of God and that people throughout the empire should basically do him um, honor and service in worship. When Catherine and I were in um, 
the city of the ancient city of Ephesus in 2009, you could still walk through the city and you could see in the museums these marble slabs that had little dips in them. What are those for? And as we read more about it, we found out those were what were libations or, or small offerings were to be burnt in order to honor the emperor. And everyone, a part of that uh, culture was, was intended to do so, to, to participate in, in this worship of Emperor Domitian as though he were God. And the Christians, as you can imagine, refused to do it. And more than that, they refused to participate in the celebrations that would just be a part of the normal cultural life of the city where Artemis, the fertility goddess, was worshipped. Um, as Johnson points out, Artemis was the embodiment of sexuality and the embodiment of sexual lust as manifested by her many exposed breasts. As we walked through the city, as we uh, went through the museum, we would see these statues, these idols of Artemis all over the place. They were everywhere. This city honored her and the first Christians did not, and they paid dearly for it. Daryl Johnson says it like this, they were refusing to participate in idolatrous worship and were patiently accepting the consequences. Rejection by friends, scorn of civil leaders, loss of customers, boycott by the business community. And more than that, they faced internal pressure, we find. For they, it says, were not tolerating wicked people or giving a platform for people to bring false teaching into the church. From false apostles who were threatening to distort the truthful apostolic teaching of the faith and the purity of Christian living. Now, I, I, I realize that on our first reading, Jesus said some things that to our late modern Western 21st century Canadian ears probably sounded a little bit kind of harsh, Jesus. You know, we don't really just talk like that around this place. You know, not tolerate and I hate that behavior. Whoa, those are strong words. Yes, they are. But of course, it doesn't take actually much mental effort at all to realize that every single community has thresholds of what will be tolerated, both in terms of beliefs and behaviors. Every even down to the family level. And we see that Jesus, boy, he hates the practice of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't hate them, and neither do the Ephesians, but the things that they do. And we'll look more at that when we look at the city of Pergamum, because they were actually embracing what the Nicolaitans were taking. So we'll look more at that in two weeks from now. But Jesus affirms them for not giving over to these ways of thinking and living. And we all know that there's edges in every community. For I can still remember the voice of my elementary school teacher. That kind of behavior will not be tolerated in our class, right? And most of us were really glad for it because the kind of behavior she was talking about was bullying. It was lying. It was pushing other kids around. It was stealing their lunches. And she said, we won't tolerate that behavior. And like I said, we were glad for it. Similarly, there are certain ideas and there are certain practices that are just not fitting for Christian people. And this church in Ephesus will not allow those unfitting behaviors or beliefs to become normalized. And again, Jesus praises them for it. What are the tests? Well, it doesn't say. But if the rest of the New Testament is any indication, it likely has to do with Jesus' identity as God the Son, who is both fully human and fully God at the same time, indivisibly. 
that was one of the things that we see raised in other places. And on top of that, it probably had to do with Jesus being physically and bodily raised. That's another pressure point theological idea we see raised in the New Testament, and especially as it's linked to actually what we do with our bodies. You see, in, the, in those first centuries, the idea that somehow our spirits could be free and kind of like, you know, that this whole spiritual realm, we could be kind of free in that area, but what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. No, Christianity says those things are two integrated areas, especially in the terms of sexuality. That became a big deal in those early times. <laughs> They're still a big deal now, aren't they? And so the church in Ephesus It takes seriously the words that the Apostle Paul spoke to its leaders in Acts chapter 20, which says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. The Ephesian church, it turns out, took that seriously. And if there's a take home for us in this, man, It's that committed Christian thinking and practice that we see in this church. Jesus honors that. And we need to stay committed to the same. For loving God starts with listening to God. To God as God speaks. Not as we want him to, but allowing God to tell us the truth about who he is. And then allowing our lives to be formed and shaped among that. So here in in Ephesus, we see this Orthodox church and they're committed to good deeds and right thinking. Brilliant, Jesus says. John Stott summarizes this community as being energetic in service, patient in suffering, Orthodox in their faith. Yeah, it's hard to think of anything you can say negative about this church at this point, isn't it? And yet, Jesus says they are in grave danger. For the one who walks among the churches sees the whole picture with piercing clarity. Look at verse four now. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus reveals the problem, but he also gives a plan and a promise. Notice first, Jesus is honest with his people. This is an act of love itself. Just as a couple sometimes have to have a hard conversation, so too Jesus will offer these sobering words. But I have this against you. When all is not well, he will say so. (laughs) He is also lovingly committed to making a plan and a path forward. But first the problem. We've seen they have their heads in the right space. There's congruence between their theology and their ethics. But they have lost. No, not lost forsaken. The word means abandoned. They have forsaken the love they had at first. Jesus walks among this church. He sees all their good works. He sees their orthodoxy and he's delighted. He praises them for it, but he also sees through it. He sees through what can't be so obviously seen from the outside. 
he sees the heart. And what does Jesus mean by the love you had at first? What love is that? Like, what, what, what's the direction of that? Scholars have put for a number of options. Four are typical. One, it means like love for one another. That's what they've forsaken. Or could it be love for God? Or maybe it's love for the gospel, like sharing this news. Or maybe it's love for Jesus. I, I think that Daniel uh, Aiken is right to ask, like, do we have to choose? For all of these are bound up in each other, Right? Jesus combines the command to love God and love your neighbor and calls them one command. Jesus is God. He and the Father are one. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. So these are all bound up with each other. And I think that scholar uh, Robert Mounts is, I think he says it well. He says this, a cooling of personal love for God inevitably results in the loss of harmonious relationships within the body of believers. At Ephesus, hatred of heresy and extended involvement in the works appropriate to faith had allowed the fresh glow of love to God and one another to fade. We have to remember the words of Jesus that love is the hallmark of disciples. You will know they are Christians by their love for one another. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love for God and love for your neighbor. And here in Ephesus, he makes it clear they've walked away from what is the very heart of what it means to be God's people. All throughout the biblical story, we find both the Old Testament and New, the people of God are described as being in a marriage relationship with God. We are the bride of Christ, as we're called, and God loves his bride. And yet over and over again in the story, we, we see God's people flirting with other lovers. And that grows a righteous jealousy in God, like a spouse whose husband or wife is flirting with others as well. Boy, that is out of, that is out of the context of what a marriage is to be. Listen to how the Lord speaks of his people in Hosea 2.13. He says, she decked herself out with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. Do you hear the ache in those words? She forgot me. My bride forgot me. They may be going through the motions externally, uh, forms of devotion that look good on the outside, but in reality, they've given their heart's affection to other gods, be it materialism or entertainment or financial security or comfort. And over and over again, God is calling his people back to himself. You see, it's possible to be consumed, so consumed with our right ideas about God or our right approaches to moral issues, as important and appropriate as that is. And Jesus affirms it and he shows that that's so. It's also possible for these to be overshadowed, more to be replaced of what is meant to be at the very heart. It's possible to love our ideas about God more than we actually love God to be more committed to moral, good moral issues and spiritual practices than to the one who loves us. People forsake their love for their spouses in their marriages. They do it in their friendships and it can happen in the life of those who follow Jesus too. Daryl Johnson, I think, puts well how a conversation between Jesus and the Ephesian church might go. I, I, I have this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Yeah, yeah but Lord, like... I've worked hard for the church. I, I, I know. But you've abandoned your first love. 
but Lord, I am fighting for the truth on all kinds of fronts. Uh, I know, and thank you, but you have lost the attentiveness, the tenderness, the extravagance of your first love. So Jesus offers this honest appraisal, but he doesn't leave it there. In his kindness, he gives us a plan. He says, consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Three things, remember, repent, and redo. First, remember. Jesus says, recognize your true spiritual condition. Notice how far you've fallen. As Johnson says, Jesus does not call us to beat ourselves up over this, nor does he call us to work ourselves up into some emotional state. He simply calls us to recognize where we are and admit it to ourselves and to him. But memory, it has this powerful function as well of reigniting our hearts and our affections. By looking back to that time when we first fell in love and the kinds of things it would lead us to do, the way we acted, that rehearsal of the heart actually leads to transformation as well. You know, when I first began to uh, pursue Catherine, my wife now, I just, man, I just wanted to be with her. It was like university class would be out and I'd be like, how do I get near to her? <laughs> that, was my, that was my life at the moment, it seemed. I would wait by the phone expecting her to call. I would reorient my schedule to prioritize just being with her. I was thoughtful about the ways that I expressed my love for her. I, I mean, I couldn't walk past wildflowers growing in a ditch without having a handful of them to bring next time I saw her. And uh, she was in the first service, and as I was saying that, she was remembering, I got home, and she was like, oh, yeah, I remember we used to do, like, kind things for me. She was kind of joking. I still do kind things for her. But, uh, like, kind of joking, kind of not. It was funny. We laughed about it. She said, I'm joking, sort of. <laughs> but I remember, too, when I was first really coming to embrace what it meant to be loved by God, I could not get enough of Jesus. I read through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, in about the, the course of three months. I, I just could not get enough of hearing how God had loved me and seeing myself caught up in his story. If I wasn't talking about Jesus, I was talking to him, it seemed. I was adjusting my schedule. I was adjusting my finances. I was adjusting the people I spent time with. I wasn't looking now for people who would make me look good if I stood next to them. I was looking for the people that Jesus was most near to, those who were broken and hurting and in need. My generosity and concern toward others was actually growing me uncomfortably. Everything about me was beginning to be wrapped up in him. Now, of course, both of those relationships have changed. They've deepened over the years from this, you might call it a honeymoon stage. We can't simply repeat what happened in the past, that early stage. And Jesus doesn't actually ask us to. He just asks us to remember it and then to think about it. Consider, is there a difference? What is that difference? And why is that difference? Think about it. Be honest about it. That's what he asks us to do. And I think that leads us then to make a choice. What will I do with that? Do I see a difference? Will I do a U-turn? The word is repent. It means to change your mind and to change your actions, to wrap yourself in a different direction. Now, to do a U-turn in the road. So if on remembering we see that, yes, I am in a different place now, 
And yes, I actually have lost the attentiveness, the love for Jesus, the love for his people. Then the move we find is actually to rearrange our priorities. And that's what the third thing Jesus says to do. He says to redo, do the things you did at first. Consider a couple. Maybe they've let other things, even good things like their children, become more important in their life than that relationship between husband and wife. Yet they can, again, begin to make dates. They can move their calendar around like they used to do. They can spend the money for the babysitter and for the meal out. And they can put away their phones just to be attentive again to the other. And then the other begins to feel loved and that becomes reciprocated. And what happens? By redoing what they've done in the past, their heart's affections are changing again. And Jesus says, do the same. Do the things that caught your heart up at the beginning. So maybe you used to serve. Like you couldn't do anything unless it revolved around helping encourage others in their faith. Maybe you, maybe you served in kids ministry somewhere and you loved it and Jesus was working through you and you're passing on the faith to the next generation. But now you've been like, ah, you know what? It's kind of hard. Yeah, kids are messy. They get snot sometimes. I, I just, I don't know. It's not very comfortable. We need people to be serving in kids ministry. Do you know what? Um, 11 o'clock service. We would love to run a grades uh, three to five class. We're not doing it right now. Why? Because there's not interest? No, because there's not a teacher to teach it. We're just lacking people. Like the only thing stopping us or holding us back from offering more services right now is you. Well, that sounded heavy, didn't it? (laughs) But here's what I'm asking. It might not be kids ministry. It might be something else. But are there things that you just like love to do in the past and you've just kind of been like, yeah, it's just not very important to me anymore. Maybe those things are the redo thing for you. I can't say what they are for you. Maybe for you is that you used to drive to work and you would crank up those songs in praise to Jesus and lift your voice and have this amazing time of praise in the mornings. And right now you're just listening to kind of like talk radio that just makes you mad. Maybe you need to redo what you used to do. Maybe that would help reignite your affections around Jesus himself. So consider, he says, and then repent and then redo But then it comes with a serious and significant warning and promise. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, Jesus is Lord of his church. He has every right to do it. And it happens. How many churches are just a shell of what they used to be? Because mere duty had replaced any sense of delight in Jesus for our loving leader. Where love for Jesus goes, so the light of the church goes. Without first love, love, Johnson says, service becomes lifeless routine, even drudgery. But the answer is not, as I've seen people suggest, well, I'm going to stop doing anything until I really get my motives pure. No, that's not what Jesus says to do. He says, remember, repent, and then redo, like get to work. No, your motives will never always be 100% in the right place. Do the things Jesus is asking anyways. And then finally, and we're going to end on this, and the band is going to come in just a moment, the promise. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that. It's plural. To the churches. Every church who listens to this has to be listening with this question. What about this message is speaking to us? Us communally? 
and me personally as a part of the church family as well. Listen for it. Maybe something of the Ephesian syndrome is your syndrome. Maybe it's something we need to take to heart. So that's what we're listening for. And then it says to this, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That promise is to the one who's victorious. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try to get your act together, and maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. It doesn't mean that. It means trust fully in Christ and what he's done for you. And follow what he calls you to, even when it's hard. And don't back away when it's hard. That's what it means to be victorious. And when we put our trust there and order our lives around him, we get the right to eat of the tree of life. You know, we see this tree right in the very first opening chapters of the Bible. It's there in the middle. It's the source of life. And we see it on the very last page of the Bible as well, Revelation 22. It's there in the garden city, the source of life again. But we find out that after the garden, because of human rebellion, access to that life was cut off, to the tree was cut off. But we find that Jesus made a way back to it. How? By allowing himself to be hung on a tree. And we find out really that Jesus is that source of life. He is the tree of life who beckons us to him. So those who want Jesus, what do you get in the end? More of him forever. Access to the very source of life. Do you want more of Jesus? That's the promise for you today. So tell me, tell me what you daydream about, what consumes your thinking, what you want to talk with your friends about, what you recommend to others. Tell me those things. I'll tell you what you love. What are you aiming your life at? That's what your heart is wrapped around. Is it Jesus and a life of love with him? May it be so that the community of Summit Drive are those who are lovers, who just give ourselves wholly to, to following Jesus and to loving the world around us. May that be so. So let's listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches and let's pray as the band comes. Lord, we, we recognize on, on hearing these words again today, we just give you thanks, Jesus, that you are here, that you walk among us and you care about what you see. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear this and are reminded about your jealous love for us, that we ourselves wholly back to you. For those maybe who are wrestling with this, God, <laughs> they've been led to the edge of decision. Will I really follow Jesus in his ways? God, I pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, they would see the joy in following you. And Lord, work in us as a community, as a people, as a body, that we would be reflective of your love to the world around us, that when people think of Summit Drive Church, they don't think of a hollow shell of people who maybe believe the right things on the right issues, but more than that, who live out of that place of being deeply loved and loving deeply. Amen.